But this kind of book demands a lot of heart. It demands that you are vulnerable enough to face the emotions that the characters had to have faced. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustville, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Mark Sullivan, author of The Last Green Valley. And I said, that's what I want to do. I want to tell stories about people who actually lived, and I wanted them to matter, that these stories will change the reader, force them to think about things in a completely different way. Mark Sullivan is the acclaimed author of 18 novels, including the number one New York Times best-selling Private series, which he writes with James Patterson. Mark has received numerous awards for his writing, including the W.H. Smith Fresh Talent Award, and his works have been named a New York Times Notable Book and a Los Angeles Times Best Book of the Year. He grew up in Medfield, Massachusetts, and graduated from Hamilton College with a B.A. in English before working as a volunteer in the Peace Corps in Niger, West Africa. Upon his return to the United States, he earned a graduate degree from the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University and began a career in investigative journalism. An avid skier and adventurer, he lives with his wife in Bozeman, Montana, where he remains grateful for the miracle of every moment. So I've been reading The Last Green Valley, and it is a remarkable story. And I wonder, what do you say to people who say that this can't possibly be true? It just seems so unbelievable what what happened to these people. Yeah, um, but every once in a while you get onto a story that is true that seems stunning. And I was able to corroborate through historians and um, other people in Ukraine, Romania, Hungary, Poland, Czech, Czech Republic that the circumstances that were described to me actually happened. There was a thing called the long trek where um, over 100,000 ethnic Germans who had lived in Ukraine, their their families had lived there for over a century, um, were offered protection by the Nazis when Stalin counterattacked and was coming back in. And so this trip was fairly well recorded it there are exhibits about it in museums in um, Romania I've seen them and as well in uh, Germany so the way I depict the trek I think is pretty spot on Um, I retrace the entire thing so I know what it looked like I talked to people who witnessed it I Um, was lucky that there were a lot of people who were near centarians still alive who had remembered it and were cogent enough to talk to me about it. So, um, and the Martell story, you know, was told before I knew anything about this to me and it just started jiving and I knew I was onto a great story. 
Well, uh, tell us more about that when you found out about the Martells and, and I guess the, um, it kind of seemed like fate almost that, that you discovered the story. So tell us more about how you discovered yeah, it. Yeah. So, you know, after I, uh, my last historical novel beneath the scarlet sky was published, all these people were telling me, you'll never find another story like that. And I said, you know, I really thought I would. And it wasn't until, I guess I started a week after Beneath came out, I started getting these letters, messages, people telling me about various stories that would be, you know, good to be told in a novel form. And a lot of them were good. And I couldn't really put my finger on why I wasn't jumping at them. And I realized I had to have a filter. So I went back and thought about the story of Pinolello, which forms the basis of Beneath the Scarlet Sky. And I realized that that story was inherently moving and inspiring and for some people transforming, you know, his attitude about life, it really touched a lot of people around the world. And so that became my filter. I was looking for something that was inherently moving, inspiring, transformative to me and to the reader. And I didn't find it until November of 17. And I'm doing a talk about Beneath the Scarlet Sky for the local rotary and this guy comes up afterwards and introduces himself and he's a uh, retired dentist and he said do you know these people in town the martels uh, in bozeman and i said you mean like the construction people because there's this big commercial and real uh residential construction company martel construction and he said yeah and he said that's them and he said you need to hear the story about how the family came to America. The entire time I was reading Beneath the Scarlet Sky, it was all I could think about. So I said, okay. And like a couple of days later, I pull into Bill Martell's driveway and I get this bizarre feeling and I get out and I realize I can't be 250 yards from this dinner party where I heard first heard the Pino Lella story. And so I go into Bill Martell's house and he starts telling me the story of how his family had to run with the Nazis and, you know, what his family went through before. And within an hour, I know I'm telling the story because it, it was just inherently as inspiring as anything I'd ever heard that they had this courage to do what they did. And uh, they were never relented. And then they got all the way to Bozeman and their life just just exploded. So um, that's how I found it. And uh, that led to a lot of research. I had to understand the geopolitical forces at play, you know, in that time frame, where people were, where armies were. I used a lot of uh, websites. I had maps that controlled the journeys because, of course, they split up about midway through the book. And dad gets sent to a prison camp and mom has the children on her own. Uh, and I kept a pretty solid timeline based on interviews that were done with Emil and uh, Adeline Martel. And then, of course, I had constant access to the brothers and to other people who had similar stories. And through that, I was able to weave a I think a tapestry that makes you feel like you're on that track. Yeah, I, I agree with, you know, that tapestry that puts you there. 
and also just the how inspirational the story was which is what makes it so unbelievable is that it's you know it's true yeah. I wonder if you can talk a little more about um, those geopolitical movements at play, because that's another part of it that I think, uh, you know, as awful and horrible as Stalin was, you know, he he gets overlooked in history a little bit by by what Hitler was doing. So talk a little bit more about those Black Sea Germans who were caught in between Stalin and Hitler and that difficult position they were in. Sure. So it's important to understand how they got there first. So in the late uh, 1790s and continuing on for the next 20 or 30 years, Catherine the Great, who ruled Russia, offered land to ethnic Germans because they were the best grain growers in in Europe at that time. And the serfs who were in Ukraine were not capable of bringing in the kind of grain yields that the ethnic Germans could. So a lot of them took this deal and it was, you know, for so many hectares of land plus 30 years of no taxation, right? So uh, there was a a minor uh, diaspora as they go out and they set up in these colonies that they build. They almost look like a little Germany, um, and they do agriculture. And for over a century, they, these families, the Martells included, um, have a pretty darn good life. You know, they're, they're fed. They have rich lives. They have churches. They have schools. Um, all goes well until the Bolshevik Revolution. And soon after, they begin to be persecuted uh, by Stalin and uh, the entire communist regime. And this was true not only of, of ethnic Germans, but also people who are Ukrainians who um, wanted to have a distinct identity and not be beholden to the Soviet Union. And Stalin put a squash to that. Ultimately, after kicking all the ethnic Germans off the land, uh, he decided in the early 30s to starve the Ukraine and 4 million people die in like one nine month period. They just collapsed from starvation. He destroyed food in the streets that was there and shot anybody who tried to get near it. And it was meant to break the will of the Ukrainian people and any rebellion. And it did. And it also, you know, took not only countless lives, but it destroyed lives in strange ways, as I as I read. And in nineteen forty one, however, Hitler invades. And one of the first things he does is he's thinking just like Catherine the Great is I got to feed a greater expanding Germany. So I want the grain of Ukraine, which is, you know, one of the breadbaskets of the world. So he goes back to the ethnic Germans, not Hitler personally, but, you know, German representatives. And they go to the ethnic Germans and say, you want your land back? And then, yeah, we want our land back. And so they get their land back and they have a decent life in these remote places where the Martels live. I've been there. Uh, incredibly remote. Um, just like a little village surrounded by ag fields. And uh, they were able to raise their two sons, you know, there, feed them well. And then all of a sudden it is uh, the spring of 44. And since Stalingrad, Stalin's been pushing hard against the Germans and now he's got them on the run. And so the Germans, the Nazis come to people like the Martels and said, look, you can stay and wait for the bear 
and the Martels think, or we can run with the wolves, uh, the Nazis that they've come to despise during the German occupation. But ultimately, they decide to run with the wolves. And their thinking is they'll get as far west as they can, and then they'll try to get to the Western allies um, and become refugees and set out on a new life. And it, for them, it's this story of this myth that Mrs. Martell sort of develops out of this picture she sees. And that's the what I call the myth of the beautiful Green Valley, which is where they're going. And uh, it basically guides them in ways that are just remarkable and, and crazy. Yeah, it's, it's definitely hard to imagine what life must have been like for people like the, you know, Emile Martel. Um, and I know in your, your afterward, you, you say, you know, he, he was kind of quiet, reserved about his experience. So in the novel, you know, he goes through a lot of interpersonal conflict. Um, were those things that you were just able to extrapolate based on his circumstances? Yes. Based on the circumstances and events that happened in him. You know, one of the things that um, both the sons told me again and again was that, you know, their father, as they understood him, you know, mostly just listening to their mother talk about him, was very uh, uh, quiet. He was very intentionally did not want to be seen or heard because he had learned growing up under the communist system that if people have high aspirations, they usually end up in a gulag or debt. And uh, so he's remarkable for just wanting to get by and survive and not stand out. And that something happens in that prison camp because he comes out a completely different person for the rest of his life. Uh, he doesn't like to talk about the prison camp much, but you know we know the circumstances were brutal. The numbers, the deaths as I described them happened. Um, it was a, just a, a horrible place where they had him, disease-ridden. And amidst that, he works on the death detail. Uh, and Bill and I, uh, Bill, his son, had this long discussion in which Bill said, you know, something happened to him in that prison camp. He had to have friends. He had to have some allies. And I think those allies... Uh, or what changed him, or who changed him. And so I thought a lot about that, and uh, I thought about his circumstances, extrapolating who he was before and who he was afterwards, and I made that aspect of the story up to explain it. And the sons think it's great, so. Uh, well, it, it certainly humanizes him. And, and I wonder if you can talk more about that, because we, you know, we've been talking a lot about history and the research you did. And and I feel so enlightened from having read this novel. And I noticed that you you do use exact dates for headings. Um, so can you talk about your craft of doing the research and then turning that research into a fictional narrative? Sure. I try to, first of all, read a lot, of course, and I take a lot of notes and I begin to gather information that I have about specific events. And then I think a lot about the characters and who they are and what are the pressures they're under. And if there was a snippet of dialogue or something that the boys remembered, I would write it there. And then, you know, effectively, I'm looking at something that resembles 
oh, I don't know, big Swiss cheese, right, at that point. And I spend more time because I get that big Swiss cheese before I go do on-the-ground research. So when I'm there, I'm trying to fill in those holes, of just understanding in my own mind what it must have smelled like, looked like, you know, been like. And, I, you know, a lot of it I'm seeing pictures in museums describing it. And then when I get back, I really try to think again and again, who am I? It's almost like being a method actor. You're getting inside the mind of someone who's going through this experience. And the more you know about them and the more time you spend with them, at a certain point, they just start talking to you and they start telling the story. And that's a, uh, an exhilarating thing. Uh, as a writer. Um, it's kind of what I live for are those moments where I do click into these characters in such a deep level that I can write about them in a way that causes readers to experience what Emile experienced or experienced what Adeline experienced. Well, I think that's a great metaphor, the, the Swiss cheese. I never thought of it like that before. Um, can you go back a little bit into your background? Um, you were an investigative journalist. How did that contribute to your ability now as a historical fiction author? Well, it, teach, it taught me how to research and go out after information. It taught me how to interact with sources and to get them to trust me enough to talk to me. And that's proved invaluable writing historical fiction and, you know, a lot of the mystery and suspense novels that I wrote before I turned to historical fiction. Um, it also, being a reporter, really gave me a sense of how things actually work, like what are the mechanics of local governments or, and what are the mechanics of war and armies and stuff. And so I'm familiar with trying to research those aspects of it. So I understand for example, the culture of the SS, many of whom were uh, active participants in the Holocaust at the beginning of the German occupation of Ukraine. And these many of these guys end up being the ones who protect the ethnic Germans on the trek going west. So as soon as I understood that, I thought, wow, is that morally complex and bizarre to be protected by these kinds of people? And so I had to get my head in that too and understand it and not shy away from it. Um, I think I've learned the most important thing in historical uh, fiction writing is when you find something out that would at first glance prove terminal, I suppose, to the arc of the character, right? If you turn and face it, like the fear, go right at it, it, you, it yields some of the most dramatic stuff. So you, you probably understand what I'm talking about if you've read far enough in the book to know that Martel is confronted with a situation where he's watching the SS um, execute Jews. And what is his reaction and how does it occur? Um, and that those scenes ended up being some of the most powerful in the book, I think. Yeah, and, and that goes that goes beyond research um, to that that situation that Emil was in. And I think kind of a similar situation to to Pino in Beneath the Scarlet Sky, 
kind of having to take sides with the Nazis for lack of a better option. Um, was that your intention to put both these characters in similar situations? Uh, it wasn't my intention. It just so happened that they both were. And I wasn't going to, you know, I just look at that as an example of high drama um, that few of us could even fathom. So I didn't have to invent, I invented certain aspects of the confrontation at the mass execution site um, because I found out that uh, Heinrich Himmler made certain orders uh, about who would be behind the guns in, in the Holocaust before the Nazi invasion. And when I found that out, I, I realized that it was inherently dramatic or it could play into an inherently dramatic scene. So I did. And what was that like for you going to visit places like Yad Vashem and the you know what was it emotionally for you to discover or or i guess just really feel what what happened there yeah it was terrible um when i was doing the initial research and reading a lot about the german occupation of ukraine um i would come downstairs white as a ghost and my wife was looking at me oh, what's going on and i said you know i thought i read some disturbing stuff when I was researching Beneath the Scarlet Sky, but it's got nothing on what happened in Ukraine. Um, most of it having to do with the manner in which the Holocaust began. I didn't understand this when I started the research, that the Holocaust really began right after the invasion of the Soviet Union and Ukraine. Um, and they did so through what they called the Holocaust of Bullets, where they had planned mass firing squads. And that is what they did. They used mass firing squads until they figured out that they couldn't do this in a, quote, efficient manner. There were all sorts of problems with it, um, killing them by firing squad. And eventually they changed, of course, to uh, gas chambers, which were also invented in uh, the Ukraine to deal with um, this vexing problem of having to exterminate Jews. Well, and... You know, I, I have to admit, I had never, at least I did not remember something like the Holodomo, the famine in uh -huh. Ukraine. Yeah. And, you know, and then, of course, I was reminded of the Holocaust. And these things are incredibly sad and tragic. And unfortunately, genocide continues today. What, what do you think is, why do you think it's important to share stories like this through fiction? I think it's important to do because in the hands of a really skilled writer, narrative fiction can do something that it's only the rarest, rarest of nonfiction can do. And that is bring the story to life so that the reader literally falls into um, seeing and hearing the story in their minds and get they're right there on the shoulder of, of the characters. Um, and so if you have, in a sense, 
less of a read than a personal experience, the impact that it has on readers is greater. And with both these stories, I wanted to have an impact on readers. I wanted them to look at the world through the Martel's eyes and through Pinolella's eyes. And I wanted them to be faced with the same morally complex questions. I mean, one of the things I get told again and again with both these books is I found, found myself constantly asking myself what I would have done in that situation. And I always say, good, I, I intended that. And I didn't intend to take any side whatsoever. Yeah, I, I thought I certainly thought that when Emil and Adelina were discussing whether or not to go west with the Nazis or stay and wait for Stalin. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I was having my own discussion about well, what would I do if that were me and my family. Mm-hmm. Well, you're you're quite a prolific uh, author and um, with lots of success. Um, can you? Tell us a little bit about your journey to where you are now as an author and maybe what do you think has attributed to your success as a writer? Uh, well, I started, I quit my job back in oh, 29 years ago uh, to be a full-time writer. And uh, I had already written one novel while still being a reporter and I had a very demanding job and it was, it was kicking me and we had a young baby and we realized we didn't want to live where we lived. So with all these things, and I just said, you know what, if I don't try now, I'm never going to try. Cause I was like, I don't know, 31, 32. And, um, we went to Vermont. My wife got a job. I started writing and I was blessed that a year later I got a contract and, that book was about extreme skiing and ended up being a New York Times notable book of the year and wrote a lot of books in the years that followed. I had some great things happen. Um, one book was nominated for an Edgar Allan Poe Award. It was uh, another one won the uh, Los Angeles Times. It was one of the mentions. The New York Times had me as an honorable or notable book of the year. So I was having all these things, but I wasn't really feeling it. You know, uh, I liked doing it. I was good at it. Uh, then I started working with James Patterson. And he has become not only my writing partner, but my mentor. I'm very lucky. He's a very smart man. He knows more about stories than anyone I've ever known. And um, working with him for uh, a number of years really helped me understand how to continue on as a professional writer. But about that time, um, uh, I found the story of Pinolella and it changed my life in a very profound way. And I knew I wanted to tell the story. Uh, I just had to do it right. It took me a long time. I wrote, was writing novels during the entire time I was researching and sketching and doing everything that I could to try to bring World War II Italy alive on the page. Um, and that experience really forced me to change as a writer because I had to go from one that primarily led with his head, an intellectual exercise, right? Telling a suspense story or telling, or telling a mystery, they're intellectual for the most part. Not all, but for the most part. Um, but this kind of book demands a lot of heart. It demands that you are 
vulnerable enough to face the emotions that the characters had to have faced, to feel them, you know, and to try to imagine in a very deep way what they must have been going through. And that's a different kind of writing. And it took me a while to get the hang of it. And I'm still learning. Um, but I think that was the final evolution. And I saw uh, in writing Beneath and then in the reaction, that the incredible global reaction to the story, I saw that, that books and bringing stories like this can have a tremendous impact on people's lives. Um, and I said, that's what I want to do. I want to tell stories about people who actually lived and I wanted them to matter, that these stories will change the reader, force them to think about things in a completely different way and maybe transform through it. Well, it's, it's wonderful to hear that, about that transformation and I guess just the persistence it takes to stick with it and to be patient and let, to, you know, let yourself learn. And I, I definitely love that statement you said about being vulnerable enough to feel the emotions that mm -hmm. the characters go through. I think that's a great lesson for, for any young writer out there. That's exactly right. I, I think that if you're not delving into the emotions of the characters, uh, you're, you're missing half the point because basically our life is lived through our emotions. So if you're not tapping into them as a writer, you're leaving one huge instrument on the table. <laughs> Um, you've recently returned from Uganda, I think. Uh, yep. Can you tell us a little bit about the trip and what you're working on now? Yes, I am working on a story about uh, two people, husband and wife, Anthony and Florence Opoka, who as children were kidnapped and forced to become soldiers in the Lord's Resistance Army. And they meet about halfway through this 10-year ordeal, brutal ordeal, and they fall in love. And through the power of love, they not only survive, but they escape and they go on to help other child soldiers lay down their arms and leave the bush. So I was there with Anthony and Florence and we just did what I do, which is to listen to the story and start going to many of the scenes where events took place and begin stitching that tapestry together. About how long does that a research trip like that take? I was there, we had originally scheduled to be there 16 days, um, but we, when we landed, we landed on like the 4th of June, and within 24 hours, we were getting information saying that there was a, uh, a blow up in COVID going on and law to be standby because there were going to be changes in what we could and couldn't do. And sure enough, the uh, president uh, put the country in partial lockdown. Uh, there was no inter-province or inter-district travel, but we got permissions to do it with um, Anthony, who's also a major in the Ugandan army. Uh, and so we were able to get everywhere we needed to be within reason. And then we started hearing that there was even more drastic that um, some airlines were going to start shutting down travel to and from Uganda. And sure enough, Air Emirates shut down travel and we got stranded there um, 
we tried to go to Nairobi to get on an Emirates plane, but they said anybody who's been in Uganda can't go. And then we ended up buying seats on one of the last flights out that went through Doha and Qatar. And we got out. I was fully vaccinated. And so were the two guys that I was with who were helping me um, to understand the story. But it was it was an adventure. It was a good thing we tried, we got out early. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, yeah, it sounds pretty harrowing in and of itself. But I will I will definitely look forward to that story. It sounds like another important story to tell. So I've got one more question for you, and this is you put this at the back of the last Green Valley um, in your discussion guide. What is your Green Valley? Uh, I'm looking at it right now. It's, I love Montana. I, <laughs> I, mean, I look out the window and this is where I live. Um, I live in the last green Valley of the Martells, uh, for half a good portion of the year. And another part of the year I live in this Valley. Uh, but really mine is having the incredible privilege of meeting and talking to these people who have had extraordinary events take over their lives. And then, you know, I get the honor of telling their stories. And to me, that's my green valley. Well, well said. Well, I've been talking with Mark Sullivan, author of uh, numerous books and novels, including his most recent, The Last Green Valley. Mark, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for having me.